thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hi, Jello. My name is Dakota Castets. I'm down in Los Angeles, California, and I just went to the MCAS Miramar Air Show this weekend. And I had a question come up for you guys. It was my first time seeing the F-16 demonstration team as well as the Blue Angels. It was an incredible experience. But I was wondering, what is the difference between a demonstration team and a team like the Blue Angels that puts on aerobatics? Thank you for your time, and thank you so much for the show. I love everything you guys do. Keep up the great work, and thank you. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and Dakota just happened to phone in that question days after I interviewed the F-16 Viper demo team for this week's episode. So we will answer his question in just a bit. But first, let's meet today's guest co-host. Returning from episode 45 on the F-16 Fighting Falcon is retired U.S. Air Force Reserve Colonel Mike Terrell Day. How's it going, T-Day? It's going great, and uh, glad to join you and your listeners yet again. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you back. Let's see, last time we spoke with you, you were flying for the airlines and living a good life out there in Phoenix. What else is new in your world, if anything? Uh, Not much. Uh, About a year and a half ago, I transitioned into the uh, Boeing 777 basically flying international trips and uh, getting accustomed to crossing uh, time zones and international timelines, as in my previous life, sleeping in an airplane was uh, a most unnatural act. Oh, yes, I can imagine. Well, that's got to be hard on your body. I don't know how you do it, but good on you for that. So, all right, well, welcome back. And We're looking forward to what you can lend to this discussion and returning to the F-16. Before that, though, last week's F-22 episode was a big hit. Don't know if you had a chance to listen, but many listeners were surprised that the transoceanic tanking altitudes were not any higher. Now, T-Day, you flew a lot of jets over the pond over the years. Why do we go in the mid to upper 20s instead of the high 30s where you go in your 777? I mean, the F-16, the F-22, all the fighters can do it. The tankers can do it. Why do we stay a little lower generally. Yeah, exactly. So there's a couple of reasons. Probably the the major reason is airspace deconfliction. So like you said, the airliners, when they cross the pond via the Pacific or the Atlantic, basically have air routes that start at 290 to about 410, i.e. 29,000 feet up to 41,000 feet. So because of that, anytime you have uh, large formations of fighters, tankers, and that sort of thing, crossing the pond that tend to be deconflicted at lower altitudes. So 280 and below, i.e. 28,000 feet and below. So that's the major reason. And when these formations of fighters fly with tankers, they get what's called a non-standard formation block of airspace. Because if they didn't get that reservation, which is called an ALTRAV or altitude reservation, then they would have to stay within a mile and 100 feet 
of the tanker's altitude, which, you know, doing that for seven to 12 hours would be just too much work. <laughs> That's the major reason for that. Then as jets fly higher, obviously the density altitude also climbs and the air molecules decrease. So your flight controls, uh, your engines, everything has a lot more lag and, and becomes sloppier. And when you're flying uh, close formation, which sometimes you have to do when you're air refueling because you're in the weather, you know, very small corrections are required to stay in the proper position. And the higher you go, the more changes that you need to do with your flight controls and your throttles, which just makes things a lot more difficult. Yeah. So better to be down in the thicker air. Correct. So all those things put together just kind of leads to uh, being in the basically low to mid 20s. Well, that all makes sense. And uh, again, I never had a chance to do that, but I've done some tanking just over Iraq, let's say. And mm -hmm. yeah, once in a while, if you had to climb over some weather or thunderstorm, it just gets a little sloppier the higher you go. Exactly. So, okay. Now, another thing that was pointed out from the F-22 episode is that my guest co-host Chip and I missed one option for the caller who was an NFL player who said, hey, you know, what happens if you don't get jets? Well, some listeners pointed out there is one way to make sure you get jets. And that is if you get a job in the first place. And T-Day, you probably know more about this than I do. Tell us about the Air National Guard option. Okay, so a little bit of background, uh, just to, to kind of give you a little bit of context. The United States Air Force has two components. The regular Air Force component, i.e. active duty forces, and the Air Reserve component known as the ARC, A-R-C. The ARC is composed of the Air Force Reserve and the Air National Guard. The Air Force Reserve is a federal reserve force, and the Air National Guard is a state-organized component, and as such, has wider autonomy in its administration and hiring practices. So having said all that, all components, both of them, and those entities within, equip, train, and go to war under the same requirements and skill requirements. Okay. So there is no, no difference in you know performance or readiness or anything like that. A common practice is for the regular Air Force component members to separate from the active duty and join the ARC. This is advantageous because if they flew the same aircraft that that, that unit is flying, obviously they bring all that experience with them, and there's no uh, additional training required before they can basically integrate into that squadron. Additionally, the ARC units themselves can direct higher individuals that basically are not pilots yet, and they'll send them to pilot training their primary uh, flight training in the aircraft, and then they return and fly with that unit for two or three years to get seasoning so that they can be a, a fully combat-ready uh, operator. Okay. Now, having said all that stuff, the hiring for the Air Force Reserve tends to be more centralized. There is a hiring board at Air Force Reserve Command. They pick the candidates depending on, you know, whatever rack and stack uh, of requirements that they have. They send them to pilot training. Once they graduate from pilot training, then there is a pool that these candidates get sent in, and the different Air Force Reserve units basically pick individuals based on performance and uh, interviews, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. The Guard, on the other hand, tends to be more state-defined, i.e. each Guard unit is assigned to a Guard state, and the governor basically controls that until they are activated by the regular Air Force and then get sent down track to do missions and real-world operations. So hence, they tend to be more, more isolated and centralized and hire and administer by state or even by unit, depending on the mission. 
And whereas you and I in the Navy and the Air Force might have jumped from squadron to squadron and base to base, if I go get a job with, and I don't even know that many Air National Guard bases, but you know, the F-16s in Duluth, let's say, I don't know if there is such a thing. There is. Okay. So then I could theoretically stay there for an entire career, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that is one thing about the reserves and the Guard, that once you get hired to a unit, you basically stay with that unit, not for two or three years like we did on active duty and then we moved on. They tend to stay there for a minimum of five to 10 years or more, depending on whether, you know, they decide to stay, they move up the ranks, uh, that, so forth and so on. Usually about the time that you uh, make 06, i.e. colonel or equivalent of captain in the Navy, then you're kind of looking at, uh, you know, upper management. And that's about the time that the ARC will look to move individuals to other places Like Uh, in the Air Force Reserve, it's easy because it's a federal force, so they can move them around to different units, different places in the states. Right. The Guard is a little more, uh, you know, state-defined, but they also have a Guard Bureau at Washington, D.C., so a lot of times those individuals will go up there to deal with legislative affairs, acquisitions, and stuff like that. Well, T-Day, you have jumped right into the question and answer mode, if you will. You sound great. So let's just keep going with that. We don't have too many announcements anyway. We'll do a couple questions and then we'll get to today's feature interviews. So let's start with an emailed question from Dargle Naples, who asks, how did you deal with sneezing while in the cockpit? Did you go in the mask? Did you take the mask off and cover your nose? If it was a surprise, uncontrolled sneeze, did you have something you used to clean around? So... All right. So uh, kind of an unusual question, but I guess, you know, it's an everyday occurrence. So, uh, you know, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll attempt my best at it. So generally you avoid flying with a cold or, or allergies or anything like that to prevent a lot of this. Right. Right. But as you know, sometimes you don't have to have those maladies to actually have to sneeze. You know, some dust can go up your respiratory system and, and you have to sneeze. Obviously, if you have time, you know, it's coming on like sometimes you do. You'll pull your mask down and cover your mouth and uh, nose like you normally would on the ground, right? But if it's a sudden thing where you can't control it, you're obviously going to go on the mask because you just don't have time to pull it down. If that happens, you know, it can be a a dry sneeze. It's not a big deal or not. If not, uh, most people will take off their masks. Most guys uh, that I flew with and gals would carry what they're called their little uh, alcohol uh, wipes that come in little envelopes that you can rip apart, stay moist. Mm-hmm. Just to clean your mask, say if you're if you're traveling cross country or something, and you don't have a life support shop after you land, you clean your own mask for the next flight. Right. So you carry those with you. So really, that's probably the easiest way just to wipe it down and clean it off uh, if that's what happened. Well, I don't know about you, Mike, but sometimes if I'm inside and I go outside and I see the sun. I sneeze. Huh. It's just something I do. I, I've been told that has to do with your sinuses, you know, yeah. inflaming a little bit or something. And so if I'm ever flying under an overcast mm-hmm. and suddenly pop up above it, it's not uncommon for me. And so, huh. yeah, to your point, if you can get in front of it, you just pop your mask off real quick. If not, you just go. And for me, it was always dangerous because the mask constricts your face a little bit. And so to sneeze is almost like doing a violent Valsalva. So you had to make sure you didn't That's true. You know, have a problem with your ears. Yeah. And then I always carried a do-rag, as I called it. I had a mm-hmm. basically a, a bandana tied to my D-ring that I could use quickly if I had a, a small mess. But, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, and uh, I think that's what's fun is that people like Dargle will write in these little things about, well, you know, how do fighter pilots deal with this or with that? And so uh, that was a good one. And I appreciate the answer, T-Day. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Andrew from Calgary, Alberta. I had a question about timepieces. I'm sure you all have your fancy 
brightlings and stuff for formal events when you're in uniform. But uh, when you're in the cockpit, do you switch to a big digital watch that's easy to read? And my second part of that was when you're on the boat, was there like a master clock that everyone would sync their watches to, or was it just kind of up to uh, the squadron for everyone to sync their watches during uh, briefings? And that's it. I love the podcast. Take care. Bye. All right, T-Day, that is Andrew from Calgary, and he wants to know about timepieces. Right. So um, obviously, uh, fighter pilots tend to be fairly uh, critical about timepieces, sunglasses, or any other type of equipment that they have to work with. But generally, since the advent of uh, GPS and all that, and you can correct me if you guys did something different on a carrier, but in an Air Force fighter squadron, a GPS synchronized time hack is generally given either at the mass or individual flight briefs that the pilots attend. That time synchronization of everybody's timepieces is basically used to do the briefing, stop the briefing, walk out to the jet, start it up, and all that. Until the jet starts up and the onboard GPS synchronized jet clock, be it digital or analog, starts up and, and gives you the time that that goes. And then from then on, you use basically that ship's clock to do everything, to check in, to taxi, to take off, to hit your target, to do whatever, uh, you know, stand on your uh, mm-hmm. period of vulnerability, whatever it is, and then to come back and land. And that's kind of how it's, it's held up. Previously, before GPS was so widely integrated in, into the platforms, we would call the Naval Observatory Clock, which is basically a nuclear clock. Mm-hmm. And you would get a time hack off of that onto, you know, either the flight leads watch, and then everybody would, would synchronize their watches with that and go that way and then crank the old uh, analog uh, clock on the jet and synchronize it with that. But now since GPS is integrated, that's kind of gone by the wayside. Right. Did you guys do anything different on a, on the boat? Well, on the boat in later years, we, we had, of course, the GPS that the boat would use also. But in the earlier years, the boat acted as the atomic clock, if you will. So it would have a master clock somewhere. And yeah, I, I remember to your point, actually making sure my watch was as close to the hack as I could get because the time that you put in the jet was what you got. Correct. And so it wasn't until later that you could put the time in just to get it in the ballpark. And then later the GPS would tighten it up right. is what you had. And that makes a difference, like you said, whether it's a very stringent time on target or if there's some coordinated attack Mm -hmm. or even just the vol window. Hey, like we talked about last episode, this is your time. And in our business, you're not late. You're not early. You're on time. And so that is important and a good timepiece matters in affecting that as well. We did earlier talk on one of the episodes when Sunshine was with us about the different wrist devices that he wore also for the cabin pressure and a few other things. But anyway, all right. Well, appreciate that question from Andrew. Next, let's take another email today. This one's from Mike Youngblood in Austin, Texas. He says, are there any special considerations made in the rain, i.e. having to shut the canopy quicker during your startup sequence uh, when starting up in the rain or even snow? Sure. Uh, you know, definitely as uh, water and electronics is usually not a good combination. <laughs> no. So we tried to avoid soaking our cockpits ourselves or any electronic equipment that we're going to use in flight. So if there's any precipitation of any kind is falling, most pilots will open the canopy, quickly get in, lower the canopy just shy of, of uh, closed until starting the jet, and then fully close it to avoid any excessive moisture uh, getting into the cockpit and hence all the electronic equipment. Mm-hmm. Additionally, you know, in, in the case of the F-16 or the F-22, these are fly-by-wire airplanes. 
i.e. known colloquially as electric jets. And again, you just don't want a lot of water on electricity. It doesn't usually end well. That's right. And you have to be careful with that. And yeah, to your point, you might come out to an aircraft that it's raining outside and you do your pre-flight with the canopy down. And then kind of at the last second, you tell your crew chief, or in my case, the plane captain, Mm -hmm. hey, uh, you know, as soon as I get on the ladder, go ahead and raise the canopy and then I'll jump in quickly. And then if you don't see me doing it, go ahead and put it down. But of course, you have to be careful there that you don't have limbs sticking out. But that was, again, for me, where the little do-rag could come in handy the oh, sure. uh, you know that I carried because you could dry a few things off but for the most part you know you just had to deal with it and I think the aircraft are probably designed to deal with a little bit of that sure but another thing these days is that aircraft particularly where you live today will oftentimes be parked in shelters and mm-hmm. that can help of course keep you out of the elements yeah exactly uh, so a lot of times if you fly in a desert environment which you know for the last 15 20 years uh, our operations have been uh, you know involved in a lot of that. Even if you don't have shelters, you'll have what we call sunshades, where they filter mm-hmm. the sun somewhat, but they also stop most of the rain. All right, next, let's take another phone call. Hey, Jello, my name is Tim Morgan. I'm calling from San Francisco, California. I have a question about the F-14. In the latest trailer for Top Gun Maverick, we saw a stinger at the end where an F-14 flew away from the camera. Now, of course, we all hope that Maverick is going to steal this F-14 from the Iranians and fly it back to the U.S. My question is this. Could Maverick even fly an F-14 that's currently operated by Iran? Have they changed so much from when they acquired them from the U.S. that they would be almost unrecognizable to a uh, F-14-trained U.S. fighter pilot? Or would he pretty much be able to get in and go... I don't know if we have this information. I know that a lot of the information about Iran's F-14s are kind of behind a, uh, an iron wall, so to speak. But I was hoping maybe you knew something and you could shed some light on the current state of Iran's F-14s and how flyable they would be to an American pilot like Maverick. Thanks. Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks, Tim from San Francisco. I love the question. T-Day, I know it's a Navy bird, but I guess the point here is former friends that are now adversaries. Could we, someone, uh, Maverick, I guess, go jump in an Iranian F-14? And I'm glad you're here on the show because I don't know if I could answer this one. I mean, I assume they didn't do a whole lot because it just costs money. But what do you know about this? My first impression or educated guess, if you will, was exactly that. But I wanted to make sure because when you're talking, uh, you know, foreign air forces modifications, and especially if they've gone from friend to adversary, you just never know. Right. So I contacted a friend of mine who used to do uh, some work uh, as a weapons analyst for the CIA. And this is all, you know, unclassified. Obviously, we're not going to get into anything wacky. But, you know, his point was, sure, there's been, you know, probably modifications to some of their avionics, uh, even to maybe uh, to uh, integrate some indigenous weapon systems, if you will. Uh, but the main systems, i.e. hydraulics, flight controls, engines, electrics, etc., remain unchanged from the original uh, United States Navy F-14s. And why is that? As, as probably a lot of our readers understand, is any time you try to you modify something on a jet or just a flying airplane, you know, you just can't do that because it may change the uh, capabilities and qualities of its flight system, and you have to do flight testing. So generally... Basic systems on airplanes are not changed just for that simple reason. Because if you change something major like that, now you don't really know what you're going to get when you take off. So for the most part, 
those primary controls and systems tend to stay pretty static uh, throughout time. And if something needs to be changed, now you're looking at a new redesign of an airplane, and that takes years and lots of money and lots of work. And also, I'd like to point out that if our readers and listeners remember, back uh, during the Reagan era, when our government negotiated the return of the of the U.S. hostages in Tehran, there was, I mean, I hate to use this word today, but it was a quid pro quo of we actually sold them some parts for the F-14s, some of the basic flying systems. Mm-hmm. So again, they were using the same parts that the original design of the F-14 for the U.S. Navy uh, was accomplished. And, you know, and there's even allegations that that was also taken care of during the Iran-Contra dealings. So all okay. that body of evidence would lead me to believe that a basically trained United States Navy F-14 Tomcat driver could jump into an Iranian F-14 jet, start it up, take off, and fly away. <laughs> well, I suppose we'll find out in late June 2020 whether Maverick gets that chance or not. I personally don't know. Yeah, me either. <laughs> but only I uh, only know what we saw in the preview there. Exactly. So, yeah. All right. Well, appreciate that. Why don't we take one final email? This is from Doug Stasek, and he is a former Navy Fire Control Master Chief Petty Officer. He asks, did you have any pre-flight rituals, listen to a certain kind of music, work out, or anything like that to get you in the right mindset to climb in and grind it out? So before you answer that, T-Day, I will tell you, when I was a young student, you know, I'd get myself all fired up and listen to inspiring music and really think about the mission that day because the grade that you got affected whether you ended up getting jets or something else in my case. And so at the time, that's what I did. But later in life, I mean, it became a job. It was like, oh, well, today I'm going flying. All right, well, I'll put down my paperwork, go jump in the jet, come back and talk to the command officer about something, back to my paperwork and go home and it's just another day. So that was uh, my answer to that. But how about for you? Yeah. You know, I think most pilots would keep those sort of things to themselves anyhow. Mm -hmm. Personally, I didn't notice a lot of those rituals around pilots when I flew, you know, with them in the Air Force. I think what you said is, is right on. I guess when you start out, you know, you don't have habit patterns that have been developed. So you try to make some just to keep things you know, as normal or as predictable as possible. Mm -hmm. And then once you're seasoned, if you will, or, uh, you know, you've been doing it for a while and just those habit patterns have been developed by your experience and everything that you've done. And you're exactly right. I mean, you'd walk out of a brief to go fly and you'd, you know, you'd get on a computer, you'd talk to the OPSO or whatever, you'd get something done and you'd go, it's time to step. And you run, you throw everything on, and, and there you go, you know? And right. and you didn't really think about it because it was just a daily occurrence. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't anything that you had to tune your mind to because your mind had been doing this for a lot of time. So for me, right. you know, if I had time, I would just go to the, the life support gear and just double check all my equipment. If I was in combat, I'd make sure my nine millimeter was loaded and ready to go. You know, if I had some uh, publications that I took with me, be it... Uh, line up and weapons, attack cards, target photos, uh, that sort of thing. And about the only thing I did religiously was go to the bathroom before I stepped. Uh, I guess I'd rather <laughs> yes. avoid doing that in the jet if I could. Yeah. But that was all I did. And it sounds pretty much like what everybody else does, you know, once you've been there a while and you know what you're doing. Yeah, I would say that is true. And I agree from the Navy side. I did for the longest time put a certain foot on the bottom of the ladder and I had a hand a certain way and I would, before I jumped into the jet, I would bow my head and say a little prayer. And I realized later that it became a ritual Mm -hmm. and I was 
always thinking about people that were watching me and what they were thinking. And so I stopped doing it for those reasons, because at that point it wasn't about, you know, dear Lord, keep me safe. It was, Hey, you know, this is what I always do. And I wonder if people are watching and hopefully I'm, you know, making a difference to them. And so I I quit doing it, but of course I still relied on my wingman there to uh, keep me safe. And thankfully it worked out well, but I agree with you. And, uh, I remember reading one time today an article about one of the Thunderbird pilots who was in the diamond formation in the middle of a loop, and he all of a sudden decided, wait, I have to stop at the grocery store on the way home. <laughs> and so that always stuck with me. I wasn't a pilot at the time. I was aspiring. Uh-huh. But I always thought, how on earth can he think of that? Yeah. And I guess to our point is it becomes a job, and your brain gets to the point where you can think of other things, and you don't really need any fanciful rituals or motivating music because you just go out and do it. And while you're doing it after a point with some proficiency, you can think about other things. And I always remembered that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, pilots are kind of known for being able to put different aspects of their lives in compartments. That's right. And keep them there while they're doing something else. And that usually works out well. But once you get to a certain level and you'd imagine that Blue Angel is probably at the apex of formation flying because he does it every single day and, and twice a day probably, mm-hmm. that he's able to go into another compartment and figure out, oh, yeah, later I got to do this. And then he bring, you know, comes right back. But uh, yeah, yeah that's, come right back. that's pretty that's cool. Right. Yeah, just <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for the listener questions. As always, you can email those or call us in. The information will be provided at the end of the episode. T-Day, let's get to the feature interview. Now, before we do, you will hear me incorrectly refer to them a couple times as a squadron, Hmm. when in fact, the proper name is the U.S. Air Force F-16 Viper Demo Team. Now, what else should we know? You had a chance to listen to this uh, before we all get into it. Any caveats before we go? No, I, I thought it was uh, it was a nice piece, and what I really, really liked about it, as, as your listeners will listen to it, is that it was very inclusive, i.e. what I mean by that. It, was, it wasn't just the pilot who does the demo, right? It was the whole team, and you got to see that it's basically a whole lot of people doing a lot of work, i.e. pulling on the rope at the same time, at the same way, in order to have that final product of that successful demonstration, which, you know, they're a small team. And they travel. So when they're on the road, everyone has to pitch in and do things that they normally would not do back home at the base that they're assigned to. So you have mechanics doing fueling, you have pilots uh, working accommodations or, or transportation or whatever. So you just, you basically everybody pitches in and everybody helps each other out to make sure that that, dem- that demo, you know, comes across successfully. And it's something that people want to watch when they go there. No doubt. Well, why don't we let the U.S. Air Force F-16 Viper demo team tell us all about it. All right. Today, the Fighter Pilot Podcast is at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, San Diego. It's the end of September, which means the air show is coming up. And fresh off a demo practice is the F-16 Viper Demonstration Squadron. I've corralled a few of their players into the base library here to talk about it. How's it going, guys? Good, Good, sir. Good. Good. Well, I'm glad you're here. Let's start with the folks who don't have microphones because I didn't bring enough in the background. We have Staff Sergeant Sweeney, and she is your public affairs officer. Yep. Okay. And then also Captain Jonathan Lee, call sign SNP. And what was his role again? He's our safety officer. Okay, fantastic. Now let's meet the two folks with the microphone starting over here on my left, Staff Sergeant Austin Dixon. How are you? Doing well, sir. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks. So tell us where you're from and what you've been doing in the Air Force so far. So I'm uh, from Auburn, California. So up north from here, a couple hours. Um, I've been in the Air Force for about eight years now. I was a C-130 crew chief for four years, 
And I volunteered to become an F-16 crew chief, and I haven't turned back. It's been a great – we picked up for the team. You know, I've been loving life since then. Awesome. Okay. And then the demonstration pilot himself, Major Garrett Schmitz. Toro, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. All right. Uh, tell everyone where you're from, where you went to school, and what you've been doing in the Air Force. Yeah. So I'm from Utah, a small town called Price. Left there, went to Tucson, uh, graduated from the University of Arizona, and then got picked up to fly for the Air Force. I uh, did ROTC there. So went to Oklahoma. Flew T6s and pilot training. They kept me there as a FAPE, so it's a first assignment instructor pilot. Okay. And then after my FAPE tour, I got picked to fly F-16s. So went to Tucson to train, back to Tucson to train the F-16s. Nice. And then flew in Korea for a year, and then I've been at Shaw for three years. And then just a few months ago, I got picked up to be the demo pilot. Well, that's what we want to talk about today. So let's start right off with what is the F-16 Viper Demonstration Squadron? And where is it based? How many airmen? How many aircraft? And what do you do? We're a single ship demonstration team based in Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina. So the ACC Air Combat Command has four different single ship demonstration teams. There's the F-16, A-10, F-22, and F-35. So we're the F-16 demonstration team. So our job is to go around the country putting on air shows. So we do 20 air shows a year, then probably five or six other events uh, all across the U.S. And then we've had shows in Canada and in England. We did a Riot this year. All right. So that's our job. We go out and recruit and retain and fly the demonstration and then do community outreach, things okay. like this. So recruiting is a big one. And again, community outreach. Absolutely. Staff Sergeant Dixon, how many folks on your side of the show, if you will, as far as the folks that make it happen behind the scenes? Uh, there's about seven maintainers. That's including the superintendent and NCYC. Okay. So about two crew chiefs, engine personnel, E&E's personnel, and an avionics specialist. Okay. E&E is what again? Electrical and environmental or okay. everything else. You know. All right. <laughs> so I've been owing the listeners of this show an episode on maintenance and what you folks do, which is so vitally important. We'll hopefully get to that someday, but in the meantime, you're representing. So thanks. And honestly, guys, I can't stand it. I have to confess to the listeners. So we already went through all this and I found out that my system was jacked up. And so some of it we're doing again, and it's just, it's like the elephant in the room right now. So I already know some of this, but now everyone else will know because I'm I'm actually recording correctly this time, I think. So give me a second chance to tell. Yeah, the story. <laughs> you know, I, it's, you can make some navy jokes if you want, I guess. But all right, so um, you, how many aircraft total? So we have three aircraft assigned to our team total. So okay. these are pulled directly off the line at Shaw. So we have right. three fighter squadrons at Shaw Air Force Base, and pretty much they each give up a jet for us to have on our team. So they're combat coded, which means if the proverbial war kicked off tomorrow, mm-hmm. we could put these back on the line, strap some bombs to them, and take them to warp. So a little bit different than uh, your Thunderbirds or your Blue Angels, which right. are solely dedicated to a demonstration team. Ours, ours are fighting jets. Well, I think those squadrons will always say they can convert them back in a certain amount of time. I mean, right? they got to paint them. Yeah, I got to <laughs> and take out the smoke and put back the gun or whatever. I don't know what they <laughs> take out. But anyway. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. 
If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Now, you said you go all over the world. And again, we already talked about all this, but we'll have to rehash it and I'll quit flogging myself. But you went to Riyadh this year and had a little drama. You want to let the listener know uh, what happened? Sure. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. So it was Sunday, the last day of the show. So uh, it was about a third of the way through the profile on a fairly not high G maneuver. Uh, okay. So we were just repositioning and feel an extreme airframe buffet. So as a pilot, you know, that's probably first indication have an engine stall. So we run through the procedures for an engine stall. So we ran AB, brought it out of AB to mill, mill to idle, uh, just reducing the, uh, the strain on the engine, trying to break the stall. doesn't break the stall at idle. So now the next step is to shut it off and restart it, which we don't want to do with one engine right. loaded to ground. So <laughs> check the engine stack. Engine's good. So we climbed to what we call high key, which is a point over the airfield where you can check your engine, check out. It's just a safe place to be if you need to glide it in. So right. So if you it. lose your engine, you can get comfortably back to the ground yep. using a prescribed pattern you've practiced over and over. Oh yeah. Okay. So to make a long story short, we were at high key. We think we know what the problem is. So we had a hook light on. So we think my hook inadvertently came down and kind of beat up the back of the aircraft. So we do a controllability check. It's controllable, but there's slight vibrations at landing speed. So not ideal, but it's still fine. Okay. But there's no one to check us out. So there's no one else airborne. So we do a low pass and that's when our superintendent has binoculars and sees that pieces of my right stab are coming off of the jet. So uh, at that point, uh, Snip, who's here, is actually my safety officer for yeah. that show as well. Uh, so, all right, things just got a little more intense when yeah. uh, my superintendent tells me that my right stab is deteriorating and the controls got sloppier. So it's, it's hard to describe to people who don't fly or unfamiliar with kind of fly-by-wire controls. But right. when I say sloppier, it's... You're putting in a control input and it's not necessarily doing what you want to do. It's, it was still flyable. It was perfectly fine. Crowd was never at risk, obviously, or else right. we wouldn't have landed there. But came back and landed and just discovered the, the damage that was on the jet. So we're still investigating what happened to it. So we take things like this very seriously. Uh -huh. While I may be joking a little bit, it's definitely not a, a joke. It's something we take very sure. seriously. So Well, we know it has a happy ending too. So Happy ending. Okay. Crowd was never really in danger. Right. So that's... Uh, I had several people send me pictures here on the show and like, hey, what happened? And I said, I assume, you know, a flight control surface delamination. It's not yeah. common, but it's not the end of the world. Staff Sergeant Dixon, you're on the ground. What are you thinking when all this is going on? Uh, I had no idea. He came out of a reposition and he left the box and... I got a little worried. I was like, oh, something's wrong with the jet. Okay. That's not, you know. Out of the ordinary. Yeah, it doesn't right. happen. And then he came in with his gear down and was like, oh, I guess the show's over. As soon as he pulls into chocks, I noticed that the whole trailing edge of the right stab is just gone, like <laughs> laminated. I'm like, ooh, okay. All right. This is bad. I'm guessing you didn't have an extra one of those with you? <laughs> no, it's kind of hard to bring that around, <laughs> especially right. commercially. <laughs> okay. Because when you all go to a show, you take what? The two birds, your two pilots, a yep. handful, uh, how many maintainers? Uh, about eight, nine. Pretty much most of the team? Mm -hmm. All right. But then you probably don't bring spare engines and everything else, no, right? No, yep. <laughs> Okay. So at that point, you have to uh, you know make do. Now, this wasn't one of your Shaw birds, though, right? This wasn't. So we were able to borrow an F-16 that was in Europe right. at the time. So. Did you fix it for them before you gave it we back? We fixed or? it as much as we could. <laughs> this is a higher level of maintenance than yeah. we're able to travel with. Okay. So we called in a maintenance recovery team and they came and finished up the, All right. the jet. Fair enough. All right. So we kind of got a little ahead, but you guys are based in Shaw. You're selected from Shaw pilots, as we talked about before. 
as well as crewmen. And then you travel all over. How many shows in a typical season? So we do 20 shows in a season is what we contract okay. out with the shows. And then we'll do probably five to 10 other events like flybys. We've done Super Bowl flybys. We did a D-Day Memorial and the CMA Fest flyby this year. So it's okay. a lot of different events, uh, but 20 shows total. And when you get to a show like Miramar here, is it just the actual performance or are you doing other outreach stuff in the community? Yes, yeah, so we do a lot of outreach. I would say this this show is like 50% the actual flying demonstration and then 50% oh, yeah. community outreach. So we'll do a lot of interviews, obviously, a lot of things like this. Like children's hospital visits are sure. uh, very common. School visits, so either elementary school, high school, college. So that's a big part of this job. Well, I would add one more, which is this town is infested with Navy and Marine. You guys it are is. doing the Air Force <laughs> a favor here. You got to come clean it out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to being on the team, I have a listener question from all the way back in February of 2019 from Lee in Medway, Massachusetts. He says, how does one get selected to perform with a demonstration team at air shows? Is it a tryout, leadership selection process, et cetera? And how long is a rotation? So I'd like to get this from both of you, if possible. Tora, we'll start with you. Yeah. So I'd say it's all the above okay. for everything that he listed. So how it happens is they send out the announcement that the position's coming open. You submit your name and then there's an interview process. They look at your flying ability, your leadership skills, your past job experience and kind of what you can contribute to the team. And they make the decision that way. So okay, there isn't any one thing they're looking for. It's just kind of the complete package, I would say. All right. And I might have micro-napped. How long is the tour? It's two years. All right. Yeah, so. Are you like the primary pilot for both? Or like, will SNP be the primary next year? Or Nope, I'll be the primary for both. And then I'll train up my replacement in the off-season. Okay. So you get two full years as the demo pilot. All right, cool. Yeah. Stasser and Dixon, how about for the maintainers? Oh, same thing. Our supervision will pick people out of the units and they'll put their name up in a hat and then we all go up and uh, do the interview process. They look at all of our records, make sure we're good to go. Mm -hmm. You got to fit the mold essentially. Right. See if you're air show worthy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess you don't want to be too introverted, although introverts who can at least, you know, play well with others are fine. But again, so much more of it is just the maintenance of the aircraft and the show itself. It's a lot of the community outreach and things like this. Thank yeah. you very much. And I assume for both of you, is this a good thing to have on your resume? I, oh yeah. hundred percent. Feather in the cap. Good. Okay. I mean, not quite, or maybe do you, I mean, after this, can you pretty much pick what you want or? No. So unfortunately I got to go back to my unit, you know, okay. and then start the, <laughs> start the process. Back to work. Yeah, yeah. Actual work, work, not the fun life. Well, <laughs> I'm sure this is work too. And I definitely want you to represent on that. So, but let's go back to the show itself. Now, Toro, you already talked about the red, white, and blue jets. How does this either complement or compete with maybe the Thunderbirds? And so the Navy doesn't have this, and I'm not saying you guys are wrong for having it, but you know, you'll have a, a team maybe at the FRS that can go do an F-18 demo, but you don't really have a team like you guys do. Are you and the Thunderbirds complementary? Are you competitors? I mean, how does that work? I wouldn't say we're competitors. We have a different show. Okay. So if you put us together, it'd be complimentary, I think. So we've done one show with the Thunderbirds this year, but we usually separate it out because we're both F-16s. Right. So By one, though, you mean you were at the same show? We were. There was okay. Grissom, Indiana. So we were happened to be at the same show as them. All right. Um, so their show is a lot of precision formation flying and then mm -hmm. the two solo acts. Uh, so the solos do similar stuff to what we do, but... Ours is what we call a combat capabilities demonstration. So it shows the precision and capability of the F-16 in a low-level environment. Right. And to be able to maneuver like it does, do aerobatics 300 feet off the ground, which is 
not something you're going to do in combat, but it just demonstrates the ability of this thing. Okay. And probably the highlight of the show is just the amount of Gs you pull, how fast it is and how loud it is. Right. I feel like that's what people come out to air shows to see. Sure. They want to feel the, the rumble of the engine in their chest. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what we provide. We'll provide that service. I don't know if the microphones are picking it up, but someone else is out there doing that right now. Outstanding. Now, how long is a typical performance? So there's two aspects to our job. So there's the demonstration and there's heritage flight, which okay. I'm not sure if you're familiar with. It's a program where we fly kind of combines the past and the present so that there's eight to 10 civilian pilots who are authorized to fly with us. And they fly old warbirds like P-38s, P-51s, F-86s. And then uh, there's four Air Force pilots who are authorized to fly it. So my combat demonstration, the F-16 demonstration will be about 15 minutes and then I'll rejoin and then we'll do about 15 minutes of formation flying Mm -hmm. with heritage. So in total, it's about 30 minutes. But if we don't have a heritage bird there, it'll be about an 18 minute demonstration that I'll do. Are you burning a full bag during that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we'll go through about 6,000 pounds in oh about 15 to 16 minutes. Okay. And you're up there yanking and banking, doing all that. Before that, though, Staff Sergeant Dixon, what are you doing to make sure the aircraft's ready? So these two guys fly the birds in. You fly in. How do you get here? Oh, uh, We get here commercially. Commercially. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you got to deal with that. But you arrive with your gear. And when you arrive at the show site, what are some of the things you're responsible for doing? Uh, make sure we have age. Make sure we have, you know, oil cards, hydro cards, power cards if we need to. What was the first thing you said? Age. What's that? Uh, just aeronautical ground equipment. Or, okay. Yeah. So the different carts you need. Yeah, just power cards okay. and maintenance cards and whatnot. All right. And uh, we'll go to the uh, site. We'll make sure where we're parking's, you know, fog free. We've got to do a fog walk. Make sure everything's safe. Good to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, get in touch with their show director. Make sure that they know that we're coming. Like, right. And what time we're going to be there. So these guys are hired as like hired as a crew chief and a maintainer, but they do everything. Right. So our crew chiefs and our NCOIC and our superintendent, they're also our announcer. Then we've got our avionics guys, our video guy. <laughs> yeah. So multiple hats. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. You're a small team. So if there's multiple things to be done, instead of sitting idle, you can go, all right, do that. So when the bird comes back, apart from the time in Riyadh we talked about, what's the normal steps at that point? Uh, we'll do our inspection and uh, make sure everything's good to go. Probably take about an hour and a half, two hours to look through the jet, make sure everything's good, put gas on it, fuel, oil. Go service through the, it, basically. Yeah, service okay. it, make sure it's safe, and then go through forms and be on our way. Now, you shouldn't need to, I wouldn't think, replace tires or anything because that should be done before you fly to the place, right? So mm-hmm. it's the servicing of the fluids and, uh, you know, taking care of any gripes you might have. Do you ever find yourself having to rely on local? I mean, again, here in San Diego, it's not too easy, but if you go do an air show in Nellis, let's say, are you able to tap into F-16 units that are there? Sometimes, yeah, we have to beg, borrow, steal for our equipment, <laughs> but uh, usually a lot of people are helpful right. and they want to help us out. Okay. So it's not that big of an issue. Well, when it comes right down to it, we're all on the same team, right? Yep. So if you call big Air Force, they're going to say, hey, these guys can help you out. Or again, you can just being friendly, you can get the things yeah. you need generally. Okay. And then um, you said 20 shows a year. And um, are those, have you ever been like, you've been to Europe, obviously, do you head up to Alaska or Canada or down into Central America? Or We had a show in Canada. Uh, we were in Europe. So sometimes we'll go Middle East, uh, Dubai, is an option usually every other year. Bahrain is every other year. Uh, Not for us this year. uh, So they have someone else. Uh, South America is a show they did that last year, I believe, down to Columbia. They'll send us 
wherever we're needed. There are a lot of international shows next year, so mm-hmm. it, we'll find out in December what we get. Okay. And in some cases, again, if there are assets down there, you can try to use those? Yeah, but anything South Central America, we'll probably take our own right. jets. Okay. But if there's an asset that makes sense for us to use, then we'll try to use that. Now, we had an episode on the F-16 with a gentleman who had over 4,000 hours in them, and he basically walked us through all the blocks. When you go somewhere else, are you able to jump into a different jet, or does it need to fit a certain block and engine configuration that you're used to? So we can fly Block 50, which is what we fly. It's what Mm -hmm. our jets are. Uh, So that's obviously no issue going to another base and using their Block 50s. Block 40s are okay, too. As long as they're okay with us using their jets. I've flown block 40 is very familiar okay. with it. So, But what about a block 52 or 42? Yeah. Because right? that's a different engine? Yeah, right? different engine. But uh, again, it's they're so similar okay. that it would just be probably a checkout sim, a checkout ride, kind of an emergency procedures. This is the small difference because mm-hmm. of block 52, like the Pratt versus GE, there is a difference, but it's not a huge difference. Right. So okay. I've flown all blocks in terms of 25 and above. So yeah. uh, pretty familiar with all of them. Okay. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges you have with this show? I mean, again, it's usually a good news story. You guys show up, a lot of noise, a lot of speed, and you go to the hospitals and different things. But is there a head herder? I mean, Staff Sergeant Dixon, I'm guessing you're going to tell me it's the transportation, maybe? I don't know. It's not that bad. We get airline miles, so I can't complain. (laughs) All right. But, I mean, never. I'm guessing you guys are doing more than just carry on. you have any trouble losing whatever you have to bring, or do you not bring that much stuff? Uh, fortunately, like knock on wood, we haven't lost any equipment this year while we're traveling. So, All right. Any favorite airlines? And I'm fishing here because I fly for one of them. Oh, uh, I can't really say. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a safe Smart. bet. There you go. All right. Fair enough. What about on show sites themselves? I mean, is there like a crunch for time or the fuel's not right? I mean, is there any, is there any headaches generally at shows or does it typically tend to go pretty well? It's pretty smooth most of the time, depending on how the jet lands. If it lands and it's like a code two, code three, then we're going to have to stay out there and make it work, try to fix it as fast as we can. But right. again, like knock on wood, like we've been pretty fortunate this year to not have any big incidents. And Toro, for you, I mean, obviously you have weather. Some places you have aerospace restraints. I don't know if you do any shows in D.C. I'm guessing they don't do a whole lot of air shows there. I don't know. But, yeah. um, but you know, there are places where you don't want to fly certain areas yeah. or bad things happen. Um what, what's any headaches for you when you come and do shows or is it all a good time? I think you listed most of it. So weather, we're always battling weather. Right. So even transiting to and from shows, mm-hmm. you get your summer pop-up thunderstorms that you're dodging. Probably like the transit is the most work. Once we're here, the shows are really good. Uh, we haven't had any issues with any major issues with shows. Okay. So, but dodging weather and weather at a show can yeah. make a simple demonstration incredibly complicated. Yeah, I can imagine. Gosh, this is awesome. I mean, no need to beat a dead horse here. This is uh, relatively simple stuff. I mean, it's a war machine that you guys take out and, and make a lot of noise and, and, and wow people. And I don't know about you guys, but that's how I came to be in the military is I went to air shows as a young man <laughs> and thought that's what I want to do. And so here's a question for you. Have you ever met anyone that, uh, of course, you haven't been doing this that long, but uh, you know anyone who reached back out later and said, I signed up or anything else? No, I know I signed up because of Viper Demo. Yeah, really? Yeah, I saw him when I was probably eight. It was the first and only air show I went to and saw the saw the pilot do his max climb maneuver uh-huh. uh, where we kind of spiral into oblivion. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. So, <laughs> so I'm proof of concept. Air shows work. Yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> so every time I do that maneuver, I'm hoping there's some kid out there who's like, oh, I want to be a fighter pilot. And the crazy thing is there probably is and you'll never know it. I know. And the guy who did it that day, you probably don't even know who it is, but man, I don't know. Maybe you do. You should like, you know, the internet these days, you could probably find out. That's true. I mean, you guys, whoever's listening to this should come follow our Instagram page. Ooh, there so, you go. Vi- Viper demo team. 
Uh, I believe he's Diesel Dixon. <laughs> yeah. All right. Toro Schmidt, 16. Jonathan Lee. and Got to put the Instagram if, handle If you guys want to send these to me later, I'll be happy to put it in the show notes. Yeah. All right. So follow perfect. us on Instagram. All right. Well, before we wrap up, so uh, Staff Sergeant Dixon, what would you want the general public to know that they don't see here or even what they do see, but a little more about it or from your point of view about the 2019 Viper Demonstration Squadron? Easy for me to say. Um, I don't know. We put on a good show. If you want to, you know, have a free weekend, want to come out and watch some amazing uh, aircraft, come on out. Come see us at the tent. Come talk to us. We'll be there. Yeah. Do you uh, make your way to the crowd line as well? Oh, yeah. Excellent. All the time. Good. Because you're inspiring young people, too. Not everybody has the vision, as I've learned from the show. I get a lot of emails from people, oh, I wanted to be a pilot, but didn't have color vision or good enough vision. But a lot of people can still, you know, find other ways to serve and do things. Oh, yeah. and yours is a, a critically important job. You're inspiring yeah, young men and women, too. <laughs> Excellent. All right. How about you, Toro? Uh, what do you want the public to know that maybe they don't see in just the plain old loud and fun, fast demo? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. So while we're a flying demonstration, like if you're interested in the military, the Air Force realizes if there's any job you want to do, like we have it. So it's a great way to get training, get education, mm -hmm. um, and just have an experience in life that you're not going to find anywhere else. So if there's something you're interested in, take a look at the military, take a look at the air force. So if you want to do it, we most likely offer it. Other than that, come out to our shows. It's a great show. We have a tent set up, uh, come by, say hi to the team. Uh, we'll hand out free stickers and, uh, that's pretty much it. Follow us on Instagram. <laughs> awesome. Viper Demo Team. Great, guys. Well, hey, thanks very much. Uh, before we let you go, again, I know you're probably not as familiar, but on the uh, Fighter Pilot Podcast here, we have a couple final questions. First off, what does the future hold? Staff Sergeant, we'll start with you. Uh, you still going to play the game, or are you looking to leave the Air Force at some point soon? Or um, I got like 12 more years so wanna, until I retire, retire, so I'll probably make it a career. Okay. It's been good to me so far. I can't complain. All right. Excellent. How about you, Toro? Yeah. I mean, there's tons of options after this, so... I was just talking about this a little bit earlier to the guys. I would love to go teach ROTC and continue to fly F-16s in Tucson. So okay. kind of go back to where I graduated from school, go back to the ROTC program I was in, and then fly with the guard unit that trained me to fly sure. the F-16. So it's not a job right now, but I'm working very hard to make it a j actual job. So okay. Full uh, maybe, circle. maybe this can help out. All right. <laughs> just real quickly, jumping back to the, the whole Thunderbird thing. Is this, is that something you would consider having the experiences you have now, or is that just not even related? Just the fact that they're both at air shows is I've been asked that by a lot of people. So it would be very difficult to do because yeah. uh, this takes me out of a lot of tactics. Like I'm still able to fly with the squad and do tactical flights, but right. um, doing this and then going to the Thunderbirds, uh, one, I don't think it's a plausible transition. Okay. It just keeps you out of a tactical squadron mm -hmm. for too long. Okay. So, uh, and I don't know. I like the freedom of a single ship demonstration. <laughs> Theirs is awesome. But. Yeah. Well, it's different animals. They just have some commonalities. And so that's why I thought I'd ask. It would be fun though. Like those guys are rock stars. For yeah, sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. Final question. We always ask our guests who come on the show, how they got their call signs. Now, Austin Dixon, do you go by a nickname or call sign that you're willing to share? Uh, no, not really. Sometimes people call me diesel. All right. I don't know why. You didn't put the wrong fuel in a rental car, did you? I did this once in Amsterdam. It didn't work well for us. No, I did not. <laughs> All right. Someone just came up with that? Yeah. All right. Toro, before we get to you, now Snip doesn't have a microphone, so you get a chance here. Do you want to share how he's Snip, or should we just leave that one? Uh... I can't tell that story. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go with you then. How did someone come up with Toro for Garrett Schmitz? The story that I can tell. Uh, so Toro, <laughs> obviously, in, is bull in Spanish. Right. So uh, it just came down to woo, my first squadron I went to. So 
I had trained, this is a long explanation, but that's all right. I had trained under essentially different operating system. So I think Mac versus Microsoft or okay. Android and Apple. All right. I had trained SKU instead of MMC. I didn't tell anyone when I showed up and I didn't know what was going on. So I was like a bull in the China shop out there. So I was killing, <laughs> just killing and breaking everything. Okay. So, well, you seem to have recovered. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, obviously you're here, so you must be doing something right. All right, guys. Well, unless you got any parting shots on the F-16 Viper demo team, I think we can wrap this up and get out of here. I want to thank you for your time and have a good, safe, and recruitful weekend here yeah, at Miramar. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us on. Yes, sir. Thank you very All much. Right, it was a pleasure. We'll see you. See you. All right, T-Day, that was awesome. Big thanks again to the F-16 Viper demo team for taking time out of their practice right before the Miramar Air Show to tell us all about what they do. And in the process, we answered our opening question from Dakota about how they differ from the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds. So I thought that was really great. And uh, you were never, as I understand, a demo pilot, but you did have a chance to airboss a big air show. What did you think of the interview? And tell us about your experiences. Yeah, okay, so uh, a little bit of what an airboss entails. Basically, although I did participate in my share of static displays, i.e. where you stand in front of a jet and, you know, answer questions, take pictures with the public uh, during that. Oh, yeah. As you said, I never had the privilege of being a demo pilot, but was in charge of a fairly large uh, deployment of uh, Air Force aircraft and personnel during the FIDAI 2016 Biannual Air and Space Fair in Santiago, Chile. Oh, And what is FIDAI? Let me explain a little bit about it. So it's this biannual air and space symposium that occurs uh, in Santiago, Chile. And it's the largest exposition of aerospace in the Southern Hemisphere. So, you know, it's kind of like Farnborough or uh, the Paris Air Show, that sort of stuff, where companies, governments, and people go to see air and space expositions and people buy, uh, you know, sell aircraft, weapons, uh, everything associated with aerospace. Mm -hmm. So it's a fairly large uh, symposium and operation. The U.S. Air Force deployed uh, about 240 personnel along with a B-52, two C-130s, a C-17, a KC-135, and the USAF F-22 demonstration team consisting of uh, two Raptors. So I basically had to be in charge of all that uh, humanity and equipment, and i.e. make sure it deployed safely, <laughs> it uh, was safe while it was down there, it uh, was available to the people for the static displays, and the, that the F-22 was able to basically do its uh, demonstration, much like the F-16 team did. They basically flew a demo show every day of the air show. Wow. So that's kind of what I did. So I, I was very involved in uh, all support. Uh, logistics, you can imagine transportation, security, all that stuff for that whole uh, deployment team, if you will. Right. And, you know, when you're flying in, in other countries, the regulations and controls are, are just different than we have in our own country. So while the F-22 was performing, I had to be basically in the control tower, talking to all the ground uh, control operators, making sure that nobody was taxiing within the uh, danger zone of the exposition in case anything happens. So it was basically, you know, for that 15-minute uh, flight, you know, it was basically stop that vehicle, don't let that guy taxi, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was just constant the whole time. Right. And at the same time, I'm talking to the Raptor uh, demo pilot who's doing whatever, and he's seeing something, and he'll say, hey, I see something coming up over here. So then I'd, I'd engage the local uh, control and, and deal with that. So, All right. yeah, fairly uh, 
you know, sensitive at the time that that's going on. But, you know, you get to understand uh, what they need. And this is all done. Obviously, we want to give a great show, but we want to be safe. And in case right. anything goes wrong, there's no one in that uh, exposure zone where the, the pilot has to eject or the airplane fails or anything like that. Nobody's hurt. Yeah, like they talked about their problem they had in Riyadh this year. You bet. Okay, so unlike a show, let's say, at Miramar, mm -hmm. where the Marines are in charge of the base and they take care of everything, right. the Air Force decided to put the one man in charge, you, because we needed the buck to stop somewhere. Right. But also, it's a different situation because you're going to a different country right. and you're putting forth you know, all the uh, best foot and face of the Air Force and mm -hmm. you're away from home. So th there's not always an air boss at every no. air show. No, no, not at all. Uh, you know, it was down there because the Chilean Air Force was running the demonstration part of that symposium. But, you know, different air forces, different countries have different rules. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes they're more stringent, sometimes they're not. But bottom line is our equipment and our forces have to basically operate within our set of restrictions and controls. You know, my job was to coordinate to ensure that our demo team had that while they were uh, given the show. And the other thing I wanted to point out is that the Navy doesn't really have the same thing as the F-16 Viper demo team per se, although at the training squadrons like the FRSs, they might have a pilot or two or air crew or two who are their demonstration folks, and they'll go to different air shows. Like you said, everybody can go be a static, sure. but you might have a couple folks per coast that will go to the different air shows. And unlike the Air Force, they don't have the fancy name and, and patch and uh, uniforms. They just kind of go and do the demo. But overall, it's a great recruiting tool, as we talked about, and just a good way to celebrate the military and patriotism and all those other fun things. Uh, it's always funny to me that every fleet week, you know, every year up in San Francisco and Seattle, there's always a couple people that bellyache about why are there war machines flying over and making all this noise. But right. bottom line is you, you need to have a steady stream of young men and women coming into the services and the demo teams are part way of getting their attention and mystifying them. And it certainly worked on Toro. It worked yeah, on Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, back in the day when we didn't have YouTube or Instagram or any of that stuff, mm -hmm. uh, your only possibility of, of seeing those airplanes performing uh, was really to go to an air show. We've been very fortunate in our country that aviation was born in the United States and we probably have the, the greatest aviation, largest aviation system in the world, and people have access to it. There are air shows all over our country, you know, during the summer months, right? basically in every state. If you go to other countries, that's not the case. A lot of them have fledging aviation systems. They'll have, you know, the, the, the commercial airline stuff, but the general aviation and their militaries tend to be a lot smaller. Let's say like Chile, that is their once every two-year possibility for the general populace to be near military airplanes and to see these demonstrations. So once you leave our country, these things tend to be a lot bigger deal than they are, you know, in the United States because they're just so ubiquitous, you know, for us. Well, and always a good time, I would argue, as I have said on the show and some of our musing posts, you know, you might have to deal with traffic and the heat and the higher costs of whatever it is you want to buy while mm -hmm. you're there. But a uh, day at an air show is always a great time. And I always try to make it if I can. All right, T-Day. Well, that will then wrap up our discussion today. I want to thank you very much. Before we go then, we want to thank our most recent Patreon strike leads, Steve Garcia and Nicholas Hu, and recent mission commander, Lucas Graham. 
Also, we want to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. T-Day, I know you'll be looking forward to it next month. We've been talking about it for a while. December will be Bomber Month. It's like Shark Week, only different. (laughs) Bomber Month will feature a weekly schedule and new episode format. We'll have more details on next week's episode. Until then, I think that'll do it for this week. T-Day, what else you got, buddy? Thanks for pitching in as co-host. Jello, my pleasure to participate yet again, and I always enjoy the banter. Oh, for sure. Well, you've been a good friend. Thanks very much. We'll see you next time. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here in 10 days for a return to the aircraft series with a jet that began as a carrier-based strategic nuclear bomber, but served mainly as a tactical reconnaissance bird. We'll see you later. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.